The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. been studying the relatively long and somewhat complex Old Testament book of Job, trying to do it not chapter by chapter, but in a fashion perhaps more like a stone skipping across a pond and thereby taking in good-sized chunks of text each week to see the big picture of what is going on. If you turn to Job, located just before the book of Psalms, Job chapter 38. You'll see that's happening again today in this, which is the second last week I intend to spend in this book. I'll be reading a portion of chapter 38, a small part of chapter 40, and a small part of chapter 42. And I would invite you to have a Bible open even after I read, because I'm going to be referring to things that I'll not be reading, and you can follow with your eye and take in even more of the text than is read this morning. Job 38, I read the first 18 verses. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band to prescribe limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked? Be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea and walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have You comprehended the expanses of the earth. Declare if you know all of this. Now the revelation of the Lord goes on in that vein with a whole series of powerful questions all through chapter 39. And let me read this brief part at the beginning of chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, 
Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And then the Lord challenges Job again with more uh, big subjects to stretch his mind and his thinking until finally Job answers once more at the beginning of chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of God. Father, may we somehow translate this ancient man's experience to our own reaction, to hearing your word and seeing the revelation of yourself as you have made yourself known to us in Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm asking a question this morning. What in this life do you bow down before and serve with absolute obedience, rendered as if to an authority that rules over you in an absolute way? Now, maybe some of you say, why nothing? I don't serve any such dictator as that. I would say to you, be careful, because it could be that you are serving someone or something that you are so close to and so intertwined with that you do not even see its influence over you. I know of people who serve themselves and their own ego, and they have no idea that that is true. As a pastor, I've seen negative examples, for instance, of emotionally abusive husbands who are total narcissists, so entirely self-absorbed that they cannot perceive that there could ever be any fault in themselves. And these men live day by day rudely and angrily, finding fault with their wives, blaming their wife for everything verbally, emotionally, battering her, never recognizing any possibility, or at least revealing it that they recognize it, that they are the ones desperately in need of radical change and repentance. People who serve their own selves, and they would never acknowledge it. Other folks bow down to outside powers, addictive powers like drugs and alcohol and pornography, devious powers that lie to them and deceitfully are bent on their destruction. Well, on the positive side, how many of us are true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who can say that we make it our aim each day to be ruled and overruled by a power other than ourselves that seeks to control us, 
for the greatest possible good. I mean the Holy Spirit of God. I mean bowing before the almighty, all-knowing, all-loving, all-caring, sovereign God and seeking to be yielded in adoration and obedience to him. Did you begin your day? This day, the Lord's day, by saying, Lord, may I be yours and all that I am and all that I have and all that I think. A Christian philosopher once made a declaration that has made the rounds in many different sources, quoted and requoted. He said something like this, There is not a single atom in all of the cosmos on which Jesus Christ has not put his stamp of ownership to say, this is mine. That means every atom of your physical being. That means every thought of your mind, every experience you'll ever have, every good thing and every unhappy thing that will ever happen to you. Christ our Lord has put his stamp on it and said, this is to be mine. Are we in agreement with that? So that we would say, Lord, let me consecrate my life, let me give my life, and I have to do it day in and day out because of all the powers that are arrayed against me, and say daily, I would be yours. I would be controlled by you and no other. One Lord, one sovereign God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ ruling over us. Is that our aim? We say it is, but is it really? Last time in our study of Job's odyssey and suffering, we met a speaker who had not appeared in this long book before. His name was Elihu, the youngest man. He had waited for the older men to speak first. And he was a kind of young radical who came in with the intent of lifting up God and God's personality and God's character, not wrangling over Job, you must be a big sinner like the others were, but rather saying, Job, have you really considered God? And Job had to start admitting in his mind that he had not started out, remember he started out as a blameless and upright man who wasn't being punished for particular faults, but nevertheless as the time went on he was getting worn down He was getting more defensive, more exhausted, and he was beginning to justify himself and say, I wish God would explain himself to me. I just wish God would make this clear. And he was sort of chipping away at his confidence in God. Elihu came in and said, Job, you need to refocus. You need to get yourself off center stage, move the spotlight over, and put it upon God and no one else. Now, at the end of the day, Elihu was a prophet because the space between his finished speaking at the end of chapter 37 and the beginning of chapter 38 is absolutely seamless. None of the three friends nor Job has anything to say to dispute with what Elihu said after he had raised up. And in fact, those last few verses were a vision of, of God coming great in his power. And right after that, what do we have? 38.1, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. That's my first thing for us to look at today. The Lord answered Job 
out of the whirlwind. You would think this would have been something almost terrible, fearful, if the mighty God finally came and, and decided to end this dispute of endless words and debates and say, now I will tell you what you need to know. Not your bickering that you have had among one another. Let me speak. Well, one of the questions I bring to this is, what was this like? The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Did, did they hear an audible voice? Certainly there were times in Scripture when God spoke, and that was the case. You might think immediately of Moses at the burning bush or Moses on Mount Sinai when, when God's voice was heard. You remember the movie, the, the Ten Commandments. They had to look for the deepest most sonorous voice in Hollywood, the voice of John Houston. I can't begin to imitate that man giving the voice of God, speaking the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. Apparently it was an audible voice. Well, what did we have here? There were other times when God did speak audibly. We're told the New Testament baptism of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus, a voice from heaven was heard saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. We're not actually told here in Job 38 that it was an audible voice, but we're, we do hear that God answered. Did he answer in ways that he inspired other prophets when he didn't necessarily speak audibly? And yet he said something without a, a loud voice within the heart and the consciousness and the mind of the prophet, that the prophet wrote something down, and, and when he had written it, he said, where did that come from? I have no idea where such thoughts came from. God's Spirit must have been upon me. If God spoke from this whirlwind and I had been standing beside Job, would I have heard what Job heard, or was this a message just for Job? Well, we've got all kinds of questions like that, and we can't answer them. But the point is, God is able to make himself understood. He is able to communicate. He's a speaking God. He is able to speak in precepts and thoughts and, and even sentences and particular words to make his truth known. However, it was communicated. And we are, need to believe, indeed, that what we read in these several chapters, this is one of the longest messages directly attributed. This isn't a sentence or two from God. If you look at the material, it's all of chapter 38, all of chapter 39, most of chapter 40, all of chapter 41 is drawn from things that we, we hear God spoke. This is a long message from the Lord. But notice something about it. You know, Job had been crying out and saying all along, I wish I could speak with God. I wish I could get 10 minutes in God's courtroom and present my case for why I'm being treated so unjustly. I'm sure I could convince God to agree with me in so many words he was saying. I have a whole list of questions, 1, 2, 3, 4 through 72. I want to present these to God and just sit down and have him go 1, 2, 3, 4 through 72 and answer my questions. Do you see what the Lord does? He's not in the business of answering any questions. In fact, when the Lord reveals himself, he asks the questions. You see that this whole narrative, these chapters that I refer to, every one of them is a paragraph starting out with God asking a question. Where were you? 
Have you commanded? Have you done this? Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Has the rain a father? Uh, You must know this, Job. You profess such wisdom. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds? Can you hunt out prey for the lion? And so on and so on. A challenge, an interrogation, one after another, making Job feel smaller and smaller and smaller because he cannot answer any of these things. As he's asked, did you found the sea? Do you gather the clouds? Do you sponsor the blizzard snowstorm? Do you arrange stars in their constellations? Do you have the lioness find food for her cubs? Do you supervise the birth of mountain goats? Do you know the behavior of the ostrich or the war horse? And the theme in all of this is God is saying, Job, I'm trying to be kind to you, but I don't suppose this is coming across altogether kindly. You really know nothing. You who profess that you can challenge me, you who think that I should answer all your questions, what do you know? And if I am the one who knows these answers, who knows these profound mysteries of the life of animals and the stars and the clouds and the weather and the sea where you don't, then whose wisdom and government should we trust in the affairs of your life and the suffering that you're going through? I read years ago in the biography of a a godly man, many of you will not have heard of Benjamin Jowett, but he was a British preacher of some fame in his time. And uh, Reverend Jowett was known as a a very strong pulpit preacher, a learned man. He went up to Oxford one time where he was a guest at a dinner, and all of the Oxford dons, as they call them, the scholars with two or three PhDs apiece, gathered at a dinner, and they wanted to talk with Dr. Jowett as they honored him. And the question was asked, Dr. Jowett, we should like to know what your opinion of God is. Now, whatever PhD asked that question probably thought, ah, well, I'll launch a learned conversation and we'll have this with this great preacher. And Jowett answered, he said, I should think it would be a great impertinence for me to express my opinion of God. The constant query of my life is to ask, What is God's opinion of me? I think he confounded the doctors about as well as Jesus did with the scholars in the temple when he did that. He turned it around. He was saying, it doesn't matter what our gathering of wisdom is or what my opinion of theology is. It matters what God thinks of us. God has revealed his truth to us. Now, you might say, I haven't had the kind of revelation Job had. God never impressed my mind that I had to sit back stunned that I was listening to to a divine revelation at any day in my life. Nevertheless, I say to you, God speaks in his word. We have a more ample and more voluminous revelation of God's mind to us right here in this book than anything Job received. And God sends us this revelation 
It's personal. It's pointed. It asks us challenging questions many times. But we need to be conscious, as Job was made to be conscious by the methodology of God, that we're not talking to an equal. We're not sitting down and having a a friendly philosophical chat with our friend about who God is. We're hearing from God himself about who he is when we read his holy word. And when we read this, we need to be conscious of what God told Moses. Look, Moses, tell those who inquire who has sent you that the I am who I am has sent you. The person who doesn't have to explain himself. Because his words speak so powerfully and, and with such an otherworldly wisdom and, and attractiveness and power to it, penetration to it, that I don't have to explain myself. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 of Isaiah, 55, 8. He said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, said the Lord. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts. Will I reveal myself? Will I make myself known? Yes, of course. But it's not in the same manner as some friendly conversation between friends or equals talking to equal. When God's word comes to us, it comes with a challenge. It cuts us down to size. It tells us who we are and we're not who we think we are. It tells us things like Job heard, which in so many words were Job, you don't even know the right questions, let alone the answers. Imagine Job hearing these questions and and feeling almost battered by them one after another, and yet he knows God isn't saying these things to destroy him, just to put him in a proper place. Well, the first point I made then is that the Lord is answering Job here, but secondly... And I'm going to be very quick in, in just swooping by the content of what the Lord was saying because there's so much of it that I just by necessity have to leave it to you and hope maybe even while I'm speaking you're glancing down it or you will sit down later today and read through this beautiful, it's, it's very poetic, it's very beautiful to read the Lord's challenges and his questions here. But let me just refer to them for a moment that these things that speak of the grandeur of God's sovereignty in the creation. First, God speaks of the creation itself, the act of creation. He says, Job, where were you when I made all this? You know, were you at my side holding up the blueprints so that I could understand how to make a universe? Have you entered into the depths of the seas and so on? Was it you who arranged the snow to fall or cloudbursts to gather and water the earth? Did you put the constellations in their patterns in the sky? And then in 38.9, the whole conversation shifts. I wonder, by the way, I hope you know that the chapter divisions of the Bible are not inspired. They were put there by man. If, if I was redoing those, I may I hope I can say that humbly, I would divide... Instead of starting 39.1 where it is, I would have moved it up three verses, so it started at 38.39, because there the conversation shifts from the physical universe to the animal kingdom, and it's almost like a National Geographic movie from that point onward. Job, did you show the lioness where to hunt prey? Did you show the raven how to feed its young? 
Do you know about how mountain goats give birth? Job, did you set the wild donkey free? Are you the one responsible for that? Job, the wild ox, by the way, we think that in 39.9, the wild ox refers to a beast that is now extinct, a, a very large ox that probably is much larger than a buffalo and very wild that was in that part of the world in the Near East at one time. Its remains have been found. Do, do you, have you taken this huge wild ox and tamed it so it follows you around like a puppy? Job, do you know about ostriches? Some people suggest that that section of 39, 13 and following is, is God's sense of humor, as if he's talking about a beast that is kind of ridiculous. Isn't an ostrich a little bit ridiculous? You look at it, it's a bird, but it doesn't fly. It can run as fast as a horse, but you don't want to ride on it. It's almost as if the Lord says, I even designed something as strange and bizarre as an ostrich without your help. And then a horse, a war horse, and the wonder of his power in battle. A hawk and an eagle soaring in the sky at the end of chapter 39, seeing their prey a half mile away from the heights in which they fly. Job, did you do this? And of course the answer is no. And then after Job makes a brief statement, God isn't quite finished because in 4015 to 24, he raises another call out of nature, a, a comparison to nature. This one more mysterious as he talks about a beast called the behemoth. That comes in beginning in verse 15 of that chapter. Behold the behemoth. What is that? It eats grass like an ox, but it has legs with bones like tubes of bronze and limbs like bars of iron. What is God talking about? Some people say an elephant. Believe it or not, the, the better guess by most interpreters is a hippopotamus. Did you know the hippopotamus had his day in Scripture? You say, oh, hippos, they're just sort of calm, placid beasts. Oh, no. Learn about hippopotamus. You don't want to mess with one. You get one angry with you, and you're in big trouble. They could kill you easily. Here's this powerful beast that man can hardly tame, God is saying. The river is turbulent, and he isn't frightened of that. Can you take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Here's this gigantic beast, Job. You don't know anything about him. You can't control him. And then finally comes chapter 41, where the whole chapter is devoted to a very powerful description of this beast called Leviathan. In writing Moby Dick, the author thought Leviathan was the whale. It may have been right, but there's a better verdict from most who say it sounds like crocodiles that were known in the Middle East at that time. Because go down and look at the description. It talks about gnashing teeth. It talks about scaly hide that no spear can penetrate and so on. And yet there's also a kind of a fantastic element to uh, this description as you get down into the middle of it. Verse 19, out of his mouth goes flaming torches, sparks of fire. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke. You say, I never knew a crocodile to be quite that bad. This beast 
takes on mythical proportions like something out of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you know, the Nazgul flying through the sky, scattering bodies left and right or something. There's, a, there's an element here of both nature and fantasy. But the point of God is saying, do you, Job, really think you understand the strange beasts that are in this world or that you can control them? And the answer is no. By the way, we, we liken this a little bit to, you know, if you've ever seen any really old maps or reproductions of old maps done in, in the days before anyone had circumnavigated the globe and, and whole parts of the sea were just unknown. And, and so in these old maps from the 1400s or the 1300s, there would be a great dragon breathing fire off at the corner of the map where no one had ever gone. That's kind of what the Lord is saying here. Job, there are strange wonders in the sea, in the animal kingdom that you don't know anything about. Can you admit that ignorance? Well, the Lord has humbled Job, hasn't he? And after this Niagara Falls thunderous flow of revelation from God for several chapters, let's look lastly upon its effect on the recipient. And I'll call this Job's deep bow before a sovereign God. Job had made a new recognition about God, I think, when Elihu spoke. Elihu shifted his attention and got him intellectually to start thinking about God instead of himself. But you can think intellectually about something and not bow before it. And it took the Lord himself to get Job to bow. Because now comes his full orbed, unreserved repentance and bowing low, as he says in Job 40, verse 4, I am of small account. What shall I answer? I lay my hand on my mouth. You know, there are people you know who ought to lay their hands on their mouth. Maybe for a lot of reasons. But for the reason that out of their mouth comes agnostic declarations. You, I'm sure, know people who declare they cannot believe in God. They say, oh, look, you Christian, I can't possibly believe in a God who allowed the Holocaust of the Jews in World War II. Fill in the blank with 40 different things. I can't believe in a God who let my grandmother die of agonizing cancer. I can't believe in a God who lets little children be kidnapped and abused by violent men, and so on and so on. And people say, I've got this statement, I've got this argument against God, and he can't exist. I won't allow it. Unless he straightens out and explains himself. Ladies and gentlemen, that person needs to lay his hand upon his mouth. He has no idea about whom he speaks or to whom he is directing insults. He needs, like Job, to say, I need to start listening to God and stop talking so loud that I can't hear anything but my own voice. I remind you of John the Baptist in John chapter 3. Remember, he introduced Jesus. He baptized Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, then, for a short time after that, Jesus didn't really start up his ministry yet, and people were still saying, John the Baptist is the great man. He must be the Messiah. When they came to ask John about that, you know what he, remember what he said? He said, Christ must increase. I must become less. I say to you that Job sets the pattern here for anyone who's a man or woman of faith who's suffering and can't figure out what's going on or why it's going on. 
Could we say in our suffering what Job finally learned to say? Christ, my God, must increase. I must become less. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Look carefully at what Job said there. Lord, I know you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered things too wonderful which I did not understand. And then this next statement I add to that collection of a half a dozen great sayings of Job, great sayings of faith that we have noted already in this book. Here's another one. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. There's a New Testament version of this, if you will. Jesus was in the boat early in his ministry. The disciples were fishing. You remember the scene. They had cast their net out, caught nothing. They were frustrated. They weren't yet terribly, totally impressed with Jesus that he was the Son of God, the Christ. He was an interesting rabbi, and they were fascinated about him, and they had invited him into the boat because they were inquiring about him. But he said, hey, men, put the net out the other side. I don't really know why Galilean fishermen put their net out at the other side on the command of a carpenter who they could have said, what do you know about fishing? But they did, and you know it happened. The net was so full immediately that it was about to burst, but I'm interested in the repentance that was Job-like in that boat, which came from Simon Peter. Do you remember what he did? Peter saw that. He knew it was a miracle. He knew that this was the power of God acting in his little, humble fishing boat. And he said, Lord, 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 get away from me, for I am a sinful man. Very same thing Job ended up saying. Repentance in dust and ashes when he saw the power of God at work. And it changed him from within. Have you learned yet that the great, sovereign, eternal God is not a genie in your magic lamp who is to be conjured up by your whims and arguments and bold requests? Okay, God, if you're everything they taught me in Sunday school, I'll rub the lamp and you better appear and make this disease go away, make me get this job, make this situation work out, explain this to me. How many people who call themselves Christians really worship God as a genie in the lamp? If the book of Job tells us ever anything at all, it says God is not your genie to be rubbed up and ordered what he should do for you. He is the great, sovereign, eternal God who when he reveals himself puts us in a position of such humility and repentance that we are mastered entirely by his power and his wisdom and his divinity and his sovereignty. And we are ready to accept mysteries that he asks us to accept and patiently await the unraveling of them at some great day. I close with this. I want you to hear this if you didn't hear anything else about Job. Job never, ever, ever came to the point where he said, Oh, 
Now I understand all the mysteries about my suffering. Never said that. And he never experienced that. What he did say is, now I have met God and that made all the difference as it will for you when you meet God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered for you. Our Father, Job is a strange book. Thank you for it. I have pondered it, wondered over it, asked questions of it, and I still have questions. But thank you that you leave me with questions. And you leave me as you left Job with a demonstration of yourself, your power, your wisdom, your greatness, before which I must bow and say, what do I know? I have spoken as if I was some kind of an expert. I know nothing. But, Lord, I bow before you. I yield myself to you. And I thank you that if my life is in your hands, it is in hands that are still scarred by the nails in which your son gave himself for me. And I will trust myself to those hands. Thank you for this book and what you've taught us. For Jesus' sake, amen.